Good morning again. Appreciate you guys being with us today. Uh, welcome back to the book of Exodus. We took a couple of weeks off for uh, Palm Sunday and for Easter to look at the parables of Jesus. And we are now back in the book of Exodus, going chapter by chapter through the story of God's emancipation of his people. So today we will be in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to do our best to interact with the entire chapter this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can head that way. If you have a scripture journal, you're using one of these, if you remember to bring that back today, uh, it starts on page 12 for you. Um, earlier this year, I told you guys that uh, eventually, when we got into the book of Exodus, that I would have some things to share with you, some personal things from my life about uh, sort of my spiritual and emotional wandering in the desert, you could say, uh, in, in 2020. Um, and so I want to do that today as you make your way over to Exodus chapter 3. The first week of June, I took a week off of work abruptly, suddenly. I got to a Saturday night and I was totally burnt out. Uh, I had waited way too late in the week, to be honest with you, to work on my sermon. That was a symptom of me feeling like I just could not get the words to come. I could not seem to get the scripture to come to life. And there's a lot of spirit in what happens in sermon preparation. And I just felt like I wasn't, something was up. There was a barrier going on. And so as I kind of muscled through the night before the sermon that I was going to be preaching the next morning, I could feel that I, something had to give somewhere, that I needed to take a break. And I'm not a workaholic, I don't think. I try really hard to have a good boundary between work life and home life. But if you think back to where you were in June of 2020, all of those lines were blurred, right? I mean, at that point, we're still working from home, most of us, all the time. I, I felt like at the same time I was really never working because I was just at my house and my family would need me and I would just jump in and do what I could or, or take a break and do something fun. But then at the same time, I felt like I was always working because I, for the, re the previous reason, I felt like I couldn't really say no. And so I was answering my phone and answering emails at all hours. And I don't know if you know this or not, but even when you go to seminary as a pastor, uh, nobody actually teaches you what to do every day in your job. Like they spend a lot of time helping you understand broad theological and doctrinal ideas and how to make sure that you're not going to blaspheme against God, which is very important. Everybody should learn to do that. But they don't tell you what to do on a Tuesday. Like then you really, your only boss is Jesus. So that's like at the same time incredibly intimidating, but also not like the most helpful because in the New Testament, it doesn't tell you what to do with 40 hours in the office every week. And so I was just in this place where I felt like so much of what had been normal for me, what I was used to, what I had come to rely on was just gone. And in the process of my life sort of destabilizing in every area, I'd kind of lost the ability to know if I was okay or not. That's what I was feeling that Saturday night, is I wasn't even sure if I really needed to take a break. It wasn't that I had hit this wall and like a healthy person, I had said, I know what to do here. I need to step back. I need to reevaluate. I need to get some rest. And I just was kind of like stumbling into every part of my life. And I, I felt out of control and I was nervous about that. And that came from a lot of different specific things. I felt like um, the church was kind of shrinking. If you think back to what we were doing in, in uh, May and June and July of 2020, we had moved to two services, both in the afternoon. Uh, the 5 p.m. service got as small as eight people at a couple of times. I think five of us had to be here. Uh, so there's three. Thank you to you three. I hope it was worth your time. We were glad to do it with you. But it, that's intimidating as a pastor. You know, we don't want to be in love with numbers, but when things get small really fast, you kind of go, this might be an indicator of something bad that's coming. And so that was on my heart and mind. We were losing a full-time staff member at the end of the summer. Didn't know how we were going to replace that person who does a lot of work. Um, I was being hypercritical of my preaching in the midst of all of this, trying as hard as I could to just get better and hoping that that maybe self-improvement would, would, would help me feel like uh, things were going okay, even though the metrics that I was using to measure success were, were probably pretty much off. And just from the standpoint of being tired, 
I had preached, I think, 24 out of 25 Sundays in 2020 at that point, and the only one I didn't was because I had laryngitis, and like I planned to up until that Friday, and my voice just wouldn't come back, so God graciously did that to me, I think, to give me a week off. But I just kind of felt like I was coming apart at the seams. And I want to confess that to you, not to complain. I'm not trying to put before you the burden that pastors have so you'll feel bad for me. What I want you to know is being up here on this stage does not insulate me from the reality of your lives. It just looks like different things. It's the same meal of exhausting weeks and responsibilities at home. It's just different flavors. It's different things. And if you found yourself in a low point last year, which probably most of us did, it was the lowest I had been probably since 2016, I think that the journey and the experience Moses has today in Exodus 3 will speak to you. Because what's very possible is as the vaccine has rolled out, as businesses have opened back up, as we kind of feel like life is maybe coming back toward something that's like what we used to think of as normal, you may be believing a lie that as your life goes back to normal, all that junk that you dealt with last year is just going to go away. But it isn't. It has to be dealt with. It has to be talked about. It has to be prayed through. It has to be given to God or it sits on us. And so in Moses' experience in Exodus 3 and in kind of this testimony I'm trying to give you this morning, what I'm doing is not just whining or commiserating. I want to give you a place to grab onto what's happening here in this story. And I want you to understand that if you're like me and you've reached a stopping point like that in your life where you just have to hit the brakes and kind of throw your hands up and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing or why or how I got here or where I'm going. Well, you're in good company. This is part of the being finite, of being limited, of being a human being. For me, in that experience in June, I just stopped for a week. I just didn't do any of the stuff that felt like it was kind of the most important stuff in my life. And I didn't like totally bail out without telling anybody. I let the staff know. I let the elders know. But I just went home and did chores. I remember there was a point where I was standing at the kitchen sink and I was just doing like all the dishes. Like I was just trying to find other stuff in the house, looking underneath furniture for cups that had rolled away. Like I just needed something to do that I could put my hands on. And I was washing the dishes, and I was also kind of crying a little bit while I was doing the dishes, which is a good time to cry because your back is to the room, you know, if you're trying to be tough and macho, nobody can know. And I was crying because, not because I was like in a lot of pain, I was just angry. I felt mad. I was like, I, I think God, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. I feel like I am. My wife and I became foster parents in the middle of a global pandemic. Like, I don't know what else to do for you, God, <laughs> to try to be sacrificial, to try to live outside of myself. I'm giving my all to the church. We moved to Alaska to do this. We're going to stay as long as we can. What else is there? Why do I feel hollow? And my wife, because she loves me, encouraged me, starting probably on the Tuesday of that week, that I needed to sit down and write this out. I needed to just write. That's how I process with God. It's typically how I pray. I write my prayers out. It helps me focus. I come back to him and look and see if God has answered those things. So she starts gently pushing on me. Obviously, I'm raw all over, so I didn't receive that terribly well. But a couple days go by, I get to Thursday, and I wake up, and I can tell that I'm not really improving. And that's the Thursday of the week of rest that I took, so I can feel the coming Sunday coming, and I'm thinking, if it's not getting better by the end of the day today or tomorrow, this is going to start to become a really big issue, because I still have responsibilities, I still have stuff that I've got to do to get done. And so that Thursday morning, I took pen and paper, and I wrote. I wrote out my anger, I wrote out my sadness to God, I wrote out the things that I had been carrying, lots of questions, like, why does the church have to suffer like this, God? Why would you allow a pandemic to come into the world that specifically affects an organization that kind of has to be in person to do the things that you told them to do? Why would you even bring us to a crossroads like this? Like, I don't know when the last time was that you read the whole New Testament, but about 98% of the ministry that happens in the New Testament is face-to-face. 
And the other 2% is the apostles writing the Bible, and I'm not supposed to do that. So I'm left with the other 98, and I'm thinking, what do we do? We can't do these things. Does this stuff count? I mean, we're asking questions about what even is church membership in a global pandemic? Who even goes to this church? I don't know. I meet some of you every week. You're like, oh, we've been watching online for like six months. This has been our church. And I'm like, I don't even know who you are. That's great. I'm glad you're here. But I, how, how do I shepherd you if I don't even know your name, if I've never seen you? I mean, these are new challenges for, for modern churches. And, and as I asked God these things, it really all boiled down to two questions. There were two things that I was asking God, and they're the same two questions that Moses asked God today. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to actually give you the chance to write these down, and then we're going to find the answers, okay? You don't have to do this if you don't want to, but it may be helpful for you. The first question that I had to ask God was, from God's perspective, God, who am I? That's what I was really wondering. Because, God, it feels like in my life, you, God, and other human beings who I trust are telling me I'm a pastor, you're telling me I'm a teacher. You're telling me I have a gift to communicate God's word. You're, 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 you're telling me that this voice you gave me is for your glory and it's supposed to accomplish your plan, right? Those are things that, that I know, but how do I feel? I felt used up. I felt useless, frankly. I mean, I really thought there's probably a lot of other people who could do what I'm doing way better than me and, and could fit this church better and could fit this context better. And God, I, it's cool that you're letting me kind of play around in the dirt here, but I don't feel like I'm the guy to, to be a part of leading this thing and building this thing. I mean, I, I'd lost my understanding of who I was, and so I was genuinely asking God, who am I supposed to be? I know who I've been trying to be. I know what other people expect from me. What do you say and see, God? And then the second question is, God, who are you? Do I really know you? Is a question I asked myself a lot that week. Maybe you don't know this. But even pastors go through periods of time where we look inside ourselves and all we see is doubt and fear. That's it. Reading the Bible for a living doesn't insulate us from being human. And I was in a period of my life where I, I didn't know. Like I thought, maybe I don't really understand God. Even pastors have moments where we think, like, is, is God even real? Or is this just sort of a bunch of emotional responses I've had to stuff that can be explained away with science? I've wondered that many times in my life. When I get to low places, I tend to disqualify my experience of God simply because I just don't believe in my own reliability. I think like, well, I probably misinterpreted that. I'm just a fool. I'm easy to fool. The good news is that God can handle that question. God doesn't run away from us. God doesn't go, oh, no, you don't believe in me? Bye. God's like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen today. <laughs> You're going to be fine. I have answers to your questions. We're going to get through this. So, to give you some context for why the, the book of Exodus is so important to me in the midst of this experience is I was getting ready to pitch this sermon series to the elders. That's one of my responsibilities is to kind of pray through and think about where we might need to go next and then bring those to the other two elders and ask them, does this seem like a good idea? Is this wise? Do we have enough time? You know, where, where's the church at? And so I've been working through commentaries. I've been digging through some resources and I was in Exodus 3 that week. And I felt as I worked through Moses' experience that God answered these questions for me in a way that was incredibly timely uh, for probably the first time in four or five years, I felt him grab his lasso, rope me, and pull me all the way back in. So here's the two big points that we're going to watch God give to Moses that are going to answer these two questions. These are our big ideas today. First is this, that disciples find identity in dependence. Disciples find identity in dependence. And then second, the God of Israel is unbelievably inhuman. Not inhumane, okay? I'm not saying that he's a mean guy. He's unbelievably inhuman. I'm going to explain to you what that means. God will actually explain what that means uh, toward the end of this chapter. So that's what I'm bringing to God. 
today, in this moment, as we approach Exodus 3, questions for him. Who am I? Who are you? Those are probably questions you have or have had. These are questions Moses will ask. Let's begin reading Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Just a second there. You may be thinking, I remember three weeks ago that the father-in-law's name was Rule. Is his name Rule or is it Jethro? Well, it's probably both. Jethro may actually be a title because it kind of means like exalted one or one whom we honor. So probably the same person, okay? Just so you know. He's the priest of Midian. That's, this is Moses' father-in-law. This is the household that Moses is living in. And Moses led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, which is closer to Egypt instead of farther away from it, to a place called Horeb. Now, Horeb later in the book of Exodus will be called Sinai. So this is the same mountain. Uh, it's the same mountain where Moses will end up receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, where all the crazy stuff in Exodus 30 through 34 happens on the other side of the Red Sea. So he gets to Horeb, which is the mountain of God, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, I have to take a time out here. I don't have time to give you a seminary-level theological lesson, but if you look at verse 2 specifically, when your Bible says, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, not a multitude of angels, but the definite article, this is what some scholars identify as a Christophany. Okay, that's a huge word that you don't know. A Christophany is a non-physical manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Messiah, the Christ, typically in the Old Testament. Now, we can call this Jesus if we want to, but he doesn't have the human name Jesus yet. He's just the Son, as he's been eternally known. If you were to read John chapter 1, verse 1 in the New Testament, John says that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, was with God and was God. And so this is a really cool moment to me because... If you read it casually, you kind of go, well, this is an angel, and an angel is kind of like a white guy with wings who's naked, and he's speaking from the bush. And that's not really what is happening here. The word that we interpret as angel simply means messenger. It can be in the form of anything. A dog could be an angel. A carrot could be an angel. If it opens its mouth and speaks on behalf of God, it is an angel. That just means messenger. When it says the angel, what it's communicating is the word of the Lord the incarnate, the living word. This is the second person of the Trinity. So a couple other places that this appears in your Bible, if you want to do a deep dive on this, really interesting, in the Old Testament, you've got the commander of God's army in Joshua chapter 5. You've got the fact that this uh, person accepts worship from people when he appears in the Old Testament, whereas in Revelation 19, John, who wrote Revelation, tries to worship an angel, and the angel says, no, we don't take worship from humans. No, 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 no. Well, when the, the angel of the Lord appears, he does. He receives worship from humanity. Therefore, he must be deity. Um, He's the fourth man in Daniel 3. You guys know that story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've at least seen the veggie tales with the chocolate bunnies, right? And there's a fourth man who appears in the furnace, one who is like unto the son of a god, is the way it reads in Hebrew. This is a Christophany. This is the person, the second person of the Trinity, showing up in the Old Testament. Isaiah's vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, he attributes a lot of things to God that we see in the person and work of Jesus. And then in the New Testament... When Paul is converted, he has an encounter with Jesus after Jesus has already ascended. So again, a physical manifestation without a human body. So this is important because as we read this story, you and I feel like we are tempted to believe that we're dealing with the cruel, mean, angry God of the Old Testament because somebody somewhere discipled us to think that Jesus is really different from God the Father. But that's not true. Even as God makes his presence known to Moses, a man who's never had an experience like this before, he does so as the son, as the second person of the Trinity who is and always will be the link, the connector to you and I. 
the God that we can know. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, and all things that are in God are in Christ. So that's important. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Moses said, I guess to himself or the sheep, I don't know, I will turn aside to see this great sight, to see why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses answered him and said, here I am. Now that's interesting and that happens a lot in the Old Testament when God calls out to people, they identify their location. I'm guessing because they don't know, he doesn't know where the voice is coming from. He's up in the mountains, he's probably got a couple other shepherds at least with him and he, maybe he thinks one of them is calling out to him because he's you know, around the bend or down in the crevice of a rock with, with one of the sheep. So he hears his voice and he's just like, I'm here, here I am, I'm good. Then God says to Moses out of this bush, which is on fire but doesn't burn, which is wild, he says, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he says, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. These are three names that Moses knows very well. So yes, God's name tag is long, but he's referencing people that Moses knows so that Moses knows he's legitimate. He's not just another God of Egypt that happens to be real or not because Moses doesn't know. Now Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God, which is a good and right response when you come into the presence of the God of the universe. He is that powerful. He is that glorious. He's scary. Man, when people meet God in the Old Testament, they don't just throw their hands up and close their eyes and start swaying while Chris Tomlin plays, okay? They drop down. They get on their face like you do if there is gunfire happening. That's what I picture. Like when you hear gunshots, you get flat, you make yourself the smallest target possible, you hold totally still. That is people's response when they are in the presence of God. There is something in his nature and in their nature that tells them this could get bad so fast, so fast. So he does. He hides his face, he backs up, and God says to him, one of the most amazing and beautiful and reassuring statements that God has ever made to anybody anywhere. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You remember three weeks ago, the big point that Josh made, God sees, God knows, he does, he sees, he knows. God says, I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the land of Canaan. And then he lists a few of the tribes, also the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, now look, Moses, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen myself, I've seen it, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So come with me. This is the moment when God calls Moses, come. And I am going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people who are the children of Israel out of Egypt. This is the plan. This is what I'm going to do with you, Moses. This is probably the last thing that Moses expects at this point in his life. In the book of Acts, the very first martyr is a guy named Stephen. Stephen was arguably also the first deacon in the church, a man who gave his life to serve widows and orphans and those who couldn't serve themselves. As Stephen is serving tables, he teaches the gospel to people in the city of Jerusalem. And he's such a good and effective teacher that all kinds of people are giving their lives to Jesus. And as they do, the same crowd who killed Jesus decide they got to get rid of Stephen. Because now this Stephen guy is converting all these people that they thought they were done with this when they killed Jesus. 
So they drag Stephen out and they kill him by throwing rocks at his body until they crush enough of his internal organs or smash his brain in. That's how you die when you're stoned. So they just, they're pelting him with stones. The whole time Stephen is being killed, he is lying in the dirt, looking to heaven and preaching to these people. He's communicating the whole story, the same thing he's been saying every time he serves somebody a glass of water or a bowl of soup as a deacon. This is his story. This is everything he has to say. In the midst of telling the whole story of the whole Bible, read it sometime, he communicates that when Moses killed the Egyptian man in Egypt, trying to stand up for the Israelites, that Moses understood that he was to some degree starting to deliver God's people. But how does Moses respond? You remember from three weeks ago, right? Josh told us this story. As soon as Moses kills this guy, he tries to bury him in the sand. Good luck. And then, when the Israelite people communicate that they know that Moses did this, Pharaoh finds out. Pharaoh puts a bounty out on Moses' head, and he runs. He's gone. He runs for like a week without stopping. Stops at a well, gets married to a woman. They have a kid. Moses reinvents himself. His new identity is that of a shepherd. He thinks he is done. It has been 30 years at this point since he left Egypt. I'm 30 years old, so Moses has had my lifetime to reinvent himself. It's not like he gets up every day anymore and thinks, is today gonna be the day that God redeems me, that God calls me back into his will? No, Moses is like, it's me and the sheep, man. That's it, I'm good. I lived in the palace, I had the money, I had all the power, wasn't good for me. I tried to stand up for people, I did it once, it wasn't good either. I'm done, this is it, I'm good, I'm cool. And Moses, I mean, excuse me, God calls Moses out in a way uh, that we're used to because we know this story. This is like the fourth story that you learn when you go to Sunday school as a kid, right? First you learn about Jesus, then you learn about Adam and Eve, then the flood, then you get the burning bush, right? Or maybe Jericho, one of those comes next. So we know this story so well that we sometimes forget what's actually happening. Moses is just walking. He's just trying to find enough green stuff for the sheep to eat. And then this bush is on fire. You might not know this, but when you live in a hot desert, stuff spontaneously combusts sometimes. So like Moses is probably used to seeing this dried up brush just burn when the sunlight is directed on it and refracted the right way. Like a laser, you've done this with ants when you were a kid maybe with a magnifying glass. This will happen sometimes in the desert and a thing will just burn. So it's not the burning that's the miracle. It's the not being consumed that's the miracle. It's in this that God is communicating his complete control for the very first time before he's even identified himself with words, his complete control over creation. He can do whatever he wants. For Moses, this is like a matinee movie for him. I mean, he lives in the desert, so if a bush is on fire, he's going to go over and check it out. He's going to take a minute and see what's going to happen. It's in, as he gets close to it, that he understands that something is off here, something is different. And maybe for you and I, when we think about Moses running away from Israel, we see him sort of like running away from his calling or trying to escape from God's big master plan for Moses. And I think that's wrapped up in this. I do think it's baked in to some degree. What I'm not sure is if Moses really even understood what it meant to be called by God. To assume that the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 2 are faithful to God is a pretty big assumption. At the point that Moses is born, it's been three, 350 years or so since the people of Israel came into Egypt. Then for the duration of Moses' life, they've been in harsh slavery, probably a few decades before and including his life. As a part of that harsh slavery, you remember that there was infanticide against all baby boys. So things have gone from not that great to really bad to horrifying. And as God's people are oppressed, it would make sense that they would lose faith in the God who promised to preserve them because they're human beings. Because it doesn't matter what your job is or how long you've been a Christian, if your life gets bad enough, at some point, if you're honest, you start to ask some questions about whether this thing is real or not. 
Now, it's interesting to me in Exodus 2.23, I'm not going to read it to you, but just know, you may remember from when we read it before, when the cries of Israel reach God in heaven, the Bible does not say that they were actually crying out to God. It simply says they were just moaning and groaning, that they were burdened, that they were hoping somebody somewhere would help them. But I think to assume that they were in worship of the God of Israel and actively pursuing him with their hearts and lives in the midst of slavery, like I think sometimes we picture them singing spirituals in the field as they build statues and make bricks. I don't think so. I think they were whining. I think they were complaining. I think they felt that there was no reason to live and they had lost meaning. And it's not that they cried out to God the right way at the right time in a way that was winsome and caught his attention. It's that he chose to look. He chose to notice. He was still listening. He did not forget his covenant. Right? How long is his name tag when he meets Moses? I am God, comma, the God of Abraham, comma, the God of Isaac, comma, the God of Jacob. He's going to go on in a few verses to communicate that he hasn't forgotten his covenant at all. And I told you as we read this book, we have to watch for God's promises that they're still under the surface. Well, right here, God reaches down and pulls one all the way out. And he says, look, I haven't forgotten you. I have the same plan to take you to the same place to redeem you in the same way because I care about the rest of this world that you live in. So to me, for Moses to have even been able to sense that God had a call on his life is kind of miraculous. And then for God to reach into Moses' life again at the age of probably 70 in Exodus chapter 3 is again miraculous and communicates that time just isn't the same to God. God can do what he wants. God can wait as long as he wants to. When the time is right, when the moment comes, God goes after the hearts of his people. Now, this isn't just true for Israel. This is also true for modern disciples. And to be frank with you, it's part of what drove me to the end of myself in June. I had been working really, really hard to do as much as I could for God. I had spent almost no time getting to know him, to be honest with you. I've heard it said before, it's far easier to serve God than it is to love him, and I believe that's true. Um, A guy named Jim Packer, wrote a book in an attempt to return believers to an intimate relationship with God. And early in the book, he says this. I've got a quote for you. He says, Ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and ignorance of the practice of communion with him. So not knowing what he's like and also not knowing him personally, this lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Notice he didn't say poor theology. He didn't say bad doctrine, right? He didn't say we don't know enough. He said we don't know God enough. The modern way with God is to put him at a distance, if not to deny him altogether. And the irony is that modern Christians who are now preoccupied with maintaining religious practices in an irreligious world, in other words, we're totally irrelevant, have themselves actually allowed God to be remote. In other words, we're guilty of the same thing we accuse the world of. We just do it religiously. Churchmen who look at God, so to speak, through the wrong end of a telescope, so reducing him to pygmy proportions, cannot hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. And that's where Moses is before this encounter. I mean, he lives with a priest, you guys. If you think he's not going through the motions, if he wants to stay on Jethro's good side, he's got to do all the stuff that you do if your dad's a priest in your house. Okay? I'm a pastor. My dad was a minister. I know that there's stuff that you do because your parents are in ministry. All right, You just have to smile and act like you care sometimes. And this is Moses' life. You better believe he's going through the motions. But he's lost his connection with God because he's run from his call. If you can look back at verse 7 for just a second, I want to read 7 through 10 to you again. And I want you to just remember, this is God speaking. This does not happen. This is wild to me. God is speaking. Insane. Let this work its way into your soul. Okay? It says this. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. 
My people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, to the place of all of these ites, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." So if Moses comes from a culture that has minimized God, God is offering him a solution to that. God is reintroducing himself, not just what he's done, but what he is like, who he is, his character. In verse 7, God says, I've seen, I've heard, and I know. In verse 8, God says, I've come down to you. I've come to deliver. I've come to bring them back into the covenant that I promised. Verse 9, I have seen, and in response to all of these things I have done, Moses, now I am sending you. Whoa, what? Moses is like, me? This is a pretty big plan, God. Me? (laughs) 70-something-year-old Moses? Moses who is the murderer? Moses who is now just a shepherd? Moses who is a cultural reject? Who can't find his place in the high court of Egypt nor among his own people in the slave pens? This man who has no home is the person God's going to use and send? So Moses, faced with this compassionate, totally aware, totally willing to help God, asks a question. A question that he hopes, I think, will disqualify himself. It's not the last time he's going to try to wriggle out of God's hands. Let's keep reading in verse 11. So God says, I will send you to Pharaoh. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, this is his answer, But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God again on this mountain. So God, excuse me, Moses asked God question number one. And this is the question that each of us has to ask God if we're going to be reconciled to him. Who am I, God? Who do you say I am? Who do you think that I am? What can you see in me? Because I'm not a deliverer. This is what Moses is thinking. You're talking about a delivery plan. I'm not a deliverer. I've never done this before. I never set anybody free. I tried one time. I hit a guy so hard I killed him. And now I live in the desert. So what's going on here? Because I don't think I can do this. Moses thinks he's too small. He thinks Pharaoh is too strong. He thinks God's plan is too big. And what Moses is doing is he's asking an identity question about himself. It's a question that our culture has tried to answer for a long time, both inside the church and outside the church. We think as modern people that it's our responsibility to figure out who we are and then let the world know. We try to derive our identity from within ourselves. And what that means is our identity is only ever going to be as as good as our very best days or it's going to be as worse as our bad days. It's going to be limited by us. And probably it's going to be both, and we're going to ping-pong and drive everybody in our life crazy because we don't know who we are. That's what it means to be a modern person. We're constantly reinventing ourselves. I'm going to move to a new place. I'm going to try a new friend group. Right? I'm going to switch my sexual identity because maybe that's what's wrong with my life. Maybe that's why I'm not happy, is I'm not loving the right kind of person or, or the wrong people have loved me. And to me, when we do these things, when we take 35 different personality tests trying to finally get our thumb on who we are, we're asking a bunch of people who can't answer, who am I? Who am I? Can you tell me who I am? Because I don't know. You guys, have, you know that old kid's book where that duck gets lost and it can't find its mom? And it's like asks a tractor, are you my mom? And it asks a barn, are you my mom? And a person and a dog and some scissors, like it doesn't know. It can't figure out what it might be. That's us. We laugh at that story and we're like, oh, that's cute. When people get older, they learn that they don't have to do that anymore. No, they don't. They just get better at hiding it. That's the truth. 
They figure out when and where they can ask it. They mostly ask it online. They find their tribe in a place where they can be whatever they think they need to be. And they're just as sad as they were before because scissors can't raise a duck, okay? They can't. I promise you that. And we can't really raise each other. We don't have within ourselves what we need. None of us has that thing we can now offer and fix everybody else. We have to derive our identity from something that is unlimited because we are limited. And the best solutions we can hand each other are cracked and broken and bruised and taped back together and maybe they're spray painted so they look nice, but they can't withstand the weight of our souls. They can't. God's answer to that question is the same answer that I got in June of 2020 on my front porch in my bathrobe. God says, you want to know who you are? Here's who you are. I'll be with you. That's who you are. You are a person with whom I am. And that's all that matters. That's what defines you. God's answer is that Moses' identity, my identity, your identity, is derived from God's identity. Disciples find identity in dependence. If you don't know this already, God is the only person in the story of Exodus who will make any difference at all. Moses is irrelevant to this story, to be frank with you. He could be anybody anywhere. What makes him capable, what makes him a person who's going to do this stuff is God keeps picking him over and over again. That's all. Moses doesn't need to know his Enneagram number. Moses doesn't need to know his family history better. He doesn't have to know who he wants to sleep with in order to find himself. Moses has found God, and in fact, God has found Moses and has chosen Moses and has called him out, and Moses doesn't need higher self-esteem. He needs a clearer picture and a greater sense of God's presence. So me, last year, I wanted to do it all for God. I was committed to keeping the church afloat. I was willing to compromise my own connection with God in order to do that. And so I replaced worship with work. That was my mistake. I replaced meeting God in the scriptures with just studying the scriptures to preach better. I replaced prayer with a sort of philosophical Christian worldview where I felt that I could derive God's will from my own logic and my own knowledge of God without ever actually asking him what he thinks. And I had to learn with Moses that I would only find my identity and my dependence on Jesus. God answered Moses' question number one. And now Moses, kind of stunned into selflessness, moves his focus to God. God, if, if I'm a person whom God is with, then who exactly is this God? That's what he asks next. Look at verse 13. Then Moses responds. He says to God, God, if I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what, what will I do? And they ask me, who, what is his name? Who is this God that you talk about? Remember, it's been a long time since these people have heard from God. What will I say to them? If you thought God's first answer was tricky, get a load of this one. God said to Moses, and it's in all capital letters in your Bible, I am who I am. It probably sounded like that, right? And then he said, say this to the people of Israel. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What is the Lord? The Lord is his name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, so go. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me. And he has said to me that I have observed you, and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt. And then you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I know, this is still God speaking, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he is compelled. In other words, he's not going to do what you ask. I'm going to have to force him to do this. So I will. I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and you will plunder the Egyptians. Plunder is the language of victory in war. And that's the way God sees what's about to go down. He is going to go head to head with Pharaoh. And in going head to head with Pharaoh, he will go head to head with humanity in a way that he's done many times before, but he'll do it intimately. He'll take his time. He'll move slowly. And this time it's going to all be written down so that we don't forget. That's his objective. When Moses asks God, who are you? God says, I am who I am. And you probably don't read or speak Hebrew, so I'll just tell you that baked into that that phrase, the form of that phrase, is no tense. There's no verb tense. There's no past, present, future here. So because there's no tense, God's answer is actually three answers at once. God is saying these three things. He says, I have always been who I've always been, so that's my name. I am who I am now, and I will be who I will be forever. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you and I. It's not more helpful for us to expand it in that way. But what God is doing is he's picking up our definitions of what it means to be created. Definitions like that we've, we've been made, that we grow and change over time. That's a part of human experience, that we decay until we die. God is taking those concepts and he's just ripping them up into little pieces in front of Moses. And he's going, I'm different from you. I'm not the way you are. I'm not limited like you're limited. If I were to even try to explain to you in greater detail what's happening here, it would blow your mind. You wouldn't understand it. So just trust me when I tell you I am who you need me to be to do this stuff. That's all you need to know. I am sufficient for you. Now in my life, talking as Philip, I am a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a man. Each of these statements compares me to a thought or idea that you can picture in your mind. When I say pastor, you picture something. When I picture man, when I picture father, And by making these statements to you, what I'm doing, I know I'm getting a little philosophical here, but I promise this matters, is I'm deriving my identity from something external to me, right? I'm I'm a father, but I'm not the first father ever. I'm not the father against whom all other fathers will be compared as an example. I hope not, for their sake. And I'm also a man, right? But I'm not the first man who did a bunch of stuff, and because I did it, it's now considered manly. I'm not a perfect man. I'm not burly and masculine, yet also refined and courteous. I'm not rugged and wild and mysterious, but also open and in touch with my feelings. I'm not afraid to tell it like it is, but also gentle and careful with my words, right? Like, even in trying to define to you what a man is, I have to give you these these, uh, things that don't go together, these ideas that are like opposites, because we don't all see it the same way. And in order to be inclusive enough to get the idea of what you think of when you think of a man, I have to include a bunch of stuff that doesn't agree with itself. God is not like that. Unlike us, God is all of the things that God is, and he's nothing else. And he doesn't have to reference anything else in order to explain himself to us. His identity is not derived from anything outside of himself, and frankly, we can't believe it. We don't really understand how this works, so we just have to have faith, right? And I want to be clear with you, not because the Bible dodges this, okay? This isn't one of those moments where we go, well... You know, it's it's good for pastors to know, but the Bible doesn't really say, and so we just have to have faith. We just sort of cross our fingers and throw a prayer up to heaven and hope that everything works out. No, we just read God's name. He answers the question. His answer, in its most dumbed down and human form, is still too much for us to understand. It's our problem. It is not his problem. He is not dodging it. This is not a gap or hole in our theology. God answered the question in the best way that he can, and we just can't get it all the way. That's an us problem. And to be honest with you, church, I wish I had like a really 
cute word picture that I could put in front of you that would explain this to you. You've heard people say, maybe you haven't. <laughs> this is not a good example, but it's a good example of a bad example. Uh, that the Trinity is like an egg. You ever heard this before? Shell and yolk and white, and that's how God the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all one but distinct. It's not a good, that's not a good analogy. Don't ever tell anybody that, okay? That has so many broken, limited pieces to it, and it kind of gets into antinomianism, which you may not even care about, but it's heresy. So don't say God's like an egg. In the same way, here to help you, in the same way, uh, I need to try to help you grasp this experience a little bit. But any analogy, any word picture that I paint for you is going to be limited. So I'm just going to try, instead of explaining God to you, because I think you need to just get to know him, I want to try to help you understand the miracle of God intervening into human history like he does here. I want to help you grasp the experience of encountering God, and then if you can do that, maybe you'll encounter him on your own, and that will fix that, okay? The bush that burns with God's glory in Exodus 3 is like one of us, you and I, human beings, having an ant farm on our desk, in our office or at home. And maybe we have studied these ants, and we figured out what pheromones ants use to communicate. And so we found all the pheromones that an ant would sense that would communicate to that ant that we want to set all the other ants free from Egyptian slavery, and we take those pheromones and we wipe them on a kernel of corn, and we put that corn kernel down in, in the ant farm. And then an ant stumbles across this kernel of corn, and it blows its mind. And we're like, wait, stop, don't come any closer, because we might like crush the ant by brushing our finger across it, right? It makes sense why God is telling Moses, you've come close enough. This is for your safety, not mine, okay? If one of those ants came across that kernel of corn and said to that kernel of corn, who am I? which is what Moses says to God. It would make a lot of sense for us to answer it and say that to that ant, you are an ant that is now talking to a human being. Congratulations. And that is all you really need to know. The thing that makes you different from all the other ants is I didn't talk to anybody else. You are the ant that has now made contact with a human being. You are the ant that is now for the first time processing that maybe the ant farm isn't that big and there's a lot more going on in the world than your little kingdom that you're obsessed with. This ant is not going to know what we mean if we say to the ant, you are now an ant that is communicating with a human being. We are already communicating in categories that are going to blow the finite ability of that ant to perceive with pheromones. And if you're an ant scientist and I'm wrong, just go with me here, okay? For the sake of the story, we've got to believe these things, okay? That ant is going to say to us, you want me to confront the queen of the ant hive. That's the job that you want to give me. And you're going to say, yes, here's why. Because that's a better way for me to fix your ant problems than to just tip over the ant farm and get some new ants. I've tried that before, and I committed that I'm not going to do it again. And also, believe it or not, little ant, I really love you ants, and I want you to know that, and I want you to know me, even though it's going to be really hard for us to communicate in a way that's going to help you know me. And then the ant's going to look at you and is going to say, so who are you? And you might try to introduce yourself to this ant by talking about the ant's father and the ant's grandfather and the ant's great-grandfather, because ants live like three years, okay? So if you're 30, you've been there for 10 generations of ants. So you might be like, well, I'm the same guy that talked to the other ants. Did you guys write that down? I told you to. Do you have that story still? And the ant would be like, I've heard of those other ants. That was a long time ago. This is, seems like a really big deal to me, okay? So you do that, and then you would say, I am, by my essence, a being that ruptures every category you have in your ant brain for what it means to exist. And if I get any more specific than that, you're not going to understand anything that, else that I say to you. So do you understand, like, I, I think sometimes when we think of God, he's too human. He's too little. He's just a little guy who lives in another place that we can't see, but he's about the same size as us, and maybe he glows in the dark, but he's not that big of a deal. We just don't think he's what he is. 
When God reaches through a bush, which is a silly thing for him to pick, but he wanted to do it. When he reaches through a bush and communicates with this man, Moses, he is wiping a little bit of communicative pheromone on the tip of his finger and touching the life of this ant in the ant farm. And you and I, we freak out that there might be human beings on Mars in our lifetime, right? And God is sitting at his desk in the office and watching us move a few ants from one corner of the ant farm a couple of steps to another clump of dirt in the ant farm. And we're all cheering for ourselves and freaking out about it online. And God's like, you guys are so small, man. This is wild to me that you think this is going to like break all the rules and change what we know about the cosmos. Every time God pops the lid off of the ant farm and reveals more of himself, he spends as much time explaining how different he is from us as he does that he's alike in some ways. When the Bible uses the word holy, when God tells Moses that he's on holy ground, holy doesn't mean heavenly. It doesn't mean that it has this kind of aura, that there's this circle of light around it. It simply means different from what you think it is, set apart and separate. And that seems weird to us because we're like, well, isn't Jesus all about getting us back together? Yes, but Jesus is about taking ants and turning them more into people, to use the analogy, than simply dumbing down and bringing people down to the ant level. And if you can process how small and insignificant you and I are and how many other things God probably has going on at any given time that are not just on this world at once, you'll understand how miraculous it is that that God became an ant at one point. And then he let all the other ants kill him. Is that wild to you? I mean, and he's mocked. As he's on the cross, human beings are spitting on this man, stuff that you and I wouldn't put up with. And they're saying to him, if you're really God, this makes me so mad, if you're really God, where are all the angels? Come down off the cross and kill all of us and set yourself free. And God's like, I could have, but that's not what this was about. I've done that before to you. I've wiped it all, man. You remember the flood? Do you get what, what is going on here? This is a plan that's about redeeming you, and you don't even care. You want to get rid of me as fast as you can. God is unbelievably inhuman. We cannot wrap our heads around it, but it is good news for you and I. And it means that where he seems obtuse or obscure in our lives, what he's doing is trying to tell us the truth. He's trying to connect with us. He's trying to give us something we can't find anywhere else. An identity, a meaning, a spirituality that is derived from outside of us and our problems and our own limited nature. When he says that he will be called by the name the Lord for all generations, it's true because you've done it today. You sang to him by that name. If you need any other evidence that the God of your Bible is the same God you worship today, hear this. He's the only person in the history of the world whose name has not changed in however many thousands of years we've been here doing this thing. The same name, everybody all over the world, every language you can possibly imagine, singing to God, calling him by that name. He is the Lord, and he's right. He made that promise to Moses, and he's kept it until today. And he'll keep it until we meet him, face to face. When we finally get out of the ant farm, And we get to sit at the desk with him for a little while and and understand all the stuff we couldn't have comprehended when we were limited and finite. We'll still call him the same name. It's that intimate. It's that personal. So if God says it, he will do it. If he offers us life, we can be sure that it will be better than what we think. If he demands our obedience, we can be sure that it's because he knows better and he can see farther than we can. And when he gives us the opportunity to take on his nature, to be filled with his spirit, to be his children for eternity outside of the ant farm, we would be insane not to take that chance. So this is the setup. This is sort of the last big piece before Moses goes into the court of Pharaoh and the action starts. The Charlton Heston movie starts in a couple weeks if you're tracking it that way. Moses is going to travel to Egypt next week. 
God's going to go with him. God's going to give him a few kind of tricks, things to show the other ants to convince them that he's there. And then when the Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge God, God decides to pick up the ant farm and give it about 10 good hard shakes. And we're going to work our way through each one of those so that God will make the people know that he is present and very much in total control. And it's in the presence of that God who is inhuman in the best possible ways that we who call him Lord will find all of our identity. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning as we uh, today especially dip our toes into the deeper end of the theological pool and try to comprehend doctrinal truths about your being and your nature. I pray, God, that what would be clear is the miracle of you caring about us. That all these truths, this doctrine, this theology, it's good, it's right. We should know it. We should be well-educated and understand you because you've revealed yourself. But those things should motivate our love. So that's what we want. We want today to be about affection. Receiving mercy and grace, feeling your gaze, God, knowing that you see and you hear and you know and you have come down. And we want to be a part of that. We need you, God. We, We bring you nothing. We bring you our brokenness. We bring you our problems and our baggage, our questions and our doubts and fears, our faithlessness. And we beg you, please, God, please, as you did with Moses, speak to us. Let us sense your presence in whatever way we can. If we hear your voice, if we feel your love, God, we want to know that you're here with us. And we want to be motivated by that. We want to be filled up to the brim so that we can also give that same love and mercy away. So we love you, Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, trusting that you hear us. Amen.